My name is Eddie Damstra, and I am a junior double majoring in economics and political science and a member of the International Security Studies Certificate Program here at Notre Dame. Today we are fortunate enough to have Professor Asher Kaufman join us. Professor, Professor Kaufman is the Regan Director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and Professor of History and Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His research and teaching center on the modern day Middle East with a particular focus on Lebanon, Syria, Israel, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Professor Kaufman has authored many publications, the subjects of which include Nationalism and Colonialism in the Middle East, Memory, Forgetfulness, and Silence in the Arab-Israeli Conflict, and Boundaries and Territoriality in the Middle East. Professor Kaufman also has authored a book entitled Contested Frontiers in the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Region, Cartography, Sovereignty, and Conflict, which explores a small yet ge geopolitically vital tri-border region in the Middle East. Professor Kaufman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Eddie. Okay, so uh, I would just like to start off um, talking a little bit about your book, um, Contested Frontiers in the Syria-Lebanon-Israel Region. Um, you study a region of around 100 square kilometers where Israel, Syria, and Lebanon come together without clearly defined borders. Um, this area experienced Palestinian guerrilla warfare in the 60s and 70s and Hezbollah conflicts with Israel in the early 21st century. Broadly speaking, can you talk about the origins and significance of this small yet geopolitically important region? Yes, like most political boundaries in the Middle East, uh, the boundaries in this area have been created by Britain and France. They are colonial products of uh, the geopolitical reality in the region uh, following the, the demise of the Ottoman uh, Empire. So I was interested in this particular region because although it's very small as you indicated yourself, it actually encapsulates uh, the political history of the region from a variety of perspectives. One is colonial legacy of the region and that is seen through cartographic reality, cartographic anomalies and the uh, consequences of these uh, cartographic uh, anomalies in boundary making and boundary disputes. Uh, second, it also encapsulates uh, two important uh, issues that I have been exploring in my studies. Uh, one is the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the other is inter-Arab uh, relations. And that particular tri-border region, because it involves Syria, Lebanon, and, and Israel, it allows us to juxtapose both the Arab-Israeli conflict and inter-Arab uh, state uh, dynamics. So that, in a nutshell, is why I was interested in this uh, region and why through the zooming in and looking at a very small piece of land, you can actually tell bigger stories about uh, the political history of the region in the last 100 years. Right, yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, exploration because I think it hasn't been delved into enough, um, I, and I, I think it's very worthwhile, and I think you did great research on that. Thank you. Um, also, um, Speaking of ter territory and cartography, um, your work centers on the importance of these characteristics. Um, this is obviously a large component in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, it's this, is, this question is certainly difficult and presently unresolved, but how would you see the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, being territorial, territorially resolved? Like what territorial concessions, if any, could resolve in a peaceful solution to the crisis? Right. I mean, that's a big uh, question. Can the conflict be resolved uh, territorially? 
or is this a territorial conflict that could be resolved simply by partitioning the land, let's, uh, let's say. I mean, since uh, the 1930s, this has been the approach of most uh, attempts to reach uh, a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Uh, the, uh, the understanding that the conflict is a territorial one between two national movements and the desire to solve it through partitioning the land. Uh, giving it uh, or looking at the conflict in a rational uh, manner. It's all about territory, let's divide the, uh, the land. So it started in the 1930s, then in 1947 the United Nations uh, has proposed uh, a partition plan. Again, thinking about the conflict from a territorial perspective and I, uh, trying to come up with a resolution that involves uh, partition. Uh, and uh, Throughout uh, the 1990s, the decade of peace talks, as we call it, this has been a similar approach, uh, that the conflict in its essence is a territorial, territorial one and could be resolved uh, by partitioning uh, uh, the land. Uh, that approach has basically failed in 2000 with uh, the eruption of the Palestinian Intifada and Israeli attempts to curb uh, this, uh, successful attempts to curb this uh, uh, Intifada. And uh, even today, when most people speak about pos potential resolution for the conflict, they speak about a territorial compromise. Israel will get a share of the land, Palestinians will get another share of the land, and this is how you would be able to resolve this uh, uh, conflict. Unfortunately, the more we progress with time, the more it is uh, challenging to think about a resolution from a territorial perspective, because since 1967, Israel has been, has been in control of the entire uh, land of mandatory Palestine, Israel per se, and uh, uh, the West Bank and uh, the Gaza Strip. And uh, uh, through very clear intentional policies, Israel has tried uh, successfully, one might say, to integrate the West Bank into uh, Israel to create uh, a reality where it would be very difficult to disentangle Israel in its pre-67 borders to the West Bank. And uh, that has posed many challenges, I think, to the idea of a territorial solution to the, uh, to the conflict. Right now, in the Israeli government, uh, the official policy is actually one that uh, overtly declares that uh, there is no territorial solution to this uh, conflict, and in fact Israel should assume control over almost the entire uh, West Bank, and uh, some even uh, claim that Israel should go back to uh, the Gaza Strip, the, an area that it left in 2005. So the question of a territorial solution to the conflict is becoming more and more uh, of a, a challenge, uh, and the question maybe that one might ask, okay, so if there is no territorial solution, then can we think about other forms of uh, solution or some kind of constructive change that would lead to uh, cessation of uh, violence, reduction of uh, violence? And the alternatives are not that uh, uh, promising. If, it is, if we are not talking about uh, you know, what people call a two-state solution, a partition, then what are we talking about? One state, then what kind of a one state? Uh, what role would the Palestinians play in such a one state? Would Israel be able to retain, it, retain its uh, Jewish identity in a one state uh, without coercion, without using coercion? 
And these are questions that are uh, on the table and they make the whole possibility of a territorial solution to the conflict uh, really uh, a challenge. Right. So in terms of feasibility, um, obviously both the one state and two state solutions seem far off right now. We, we, we don't see a resolution in the near future. Um, but wh which would you see as more feasible, the one state or the two state solution, if you had to rank them in terms of more fe feasible? I mean, I don't think uh, either one is feasible, but in different uh, ways. Uh, the two-state solution has, uh, has become unfeasible because uh, it's extremely challenging now to disentangle the West Bank from Israel per se. Uh, plus, the political climate in Israel, I don't think, allows for that to happen. Any government that would try to advocate uh, a separation between Israel and the West Bank uh, would face a major resistance from uh, the settler movement and its supporters uh, inside uh, Israel. Uh, that's one big uh, uh, challenge. There is a Palestinian element to this uh, problem, obviously, and that is that uh, Palestinians themselves are in disagreement about uh, uh, a negotiated agreement with uh, uh, Israel. Uh, they have been uh, divided for decades and uh, or for years about that, and there are now attempts to reach some form of reconciliation between the two major factions that uh, uh, form Palestinian political uh, map, but I'm not sure whether these reconciliation attempts would actually bear fruit. We need to see that. So from a two-state solution, or the perspective of a two-state solution, I think we are facing particular challenges. From the perspective of a one-state uh, solution, the challenges again are who would control this state? Who would, uh, what kind of uh, power sharing would be in that uh, uh, state? One thing is sure, and I think many people agree, is that we are already in a one-state reality where Israel is in effect controlling the entire territory. And uh, in this one-state reality, Palestinians have very little rights to no rights at all. And uh, they have no good reason to actually accept that status quo. I think that many in Israel would actually endorse this status quo because it uh, goes in favor of uh, Israel's dominance, Israel's uh, power, but uh, most Palestinians, if not all, cannot accept it. It's not uh, sustainable from a Palestinian uh, uh, perspective. So it leaves us with, uh, can we think about uh, you know, a third solution? Is there any way to move forward uh, constructively and think of creative ways to propose uh, a different uh, uh, solution. Uh, the way I look at it is that uh, right now there is a, we are talking about two national movements that are seeking uh, legitimacy, uh, they are seeking uh, uh, recognition, and whatever agreement we may reach in the future would have to take into account that these two national movements want to have some form of expression to their identity and to their politics within whatever political solution might come in, uh, uh, in the future. So maybe it's a question of squaring the circle, how to find uh, a space for these two national communities to express themselves politically and to have two separate uh, national bodies but in a territory that is no longer uh, 
advisable. Yes, I think I think those are some great points, especially about the one-state reality. I think um, that that's an interesting perspective that Israel on one side would they would have no incentive to want to change the one-state reality, while the Palestinians would obviously not want to accept the current one-state reality. Um, I've heard one argument that peace or lack thereof in the Middle East is almost entirely tied to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In other, word, in other words, if the conflict would be resolved, peace would be more broadly achieved over the entirety of the Middle East. Uh, do you agree with this sentiment? I would not agree with that sentiment. I think it is a stretch. I think that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is tied to many other places of contention of conflict in uh, the region. But I think it is a stretch to make the argument that uh, you know, all other conflicts in the Middle East are related to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. And this is a con this is a, uh, it's an opinion that uh, I hear in certain circles in uh, certain circles that are, I would say, critical of uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, many of them are actually in uh, the Middle East. Some blame even, you know, authoritarianism in the Middle East, in the Arab uh, countries, uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, conflict, and I think this is, you know, stretching the argument. Uh, and there is no doubt in my mind that, uh, let's say, if the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is resolved, then Iran would lose much of its edge against Israel. Uh, but at the same time. I'm uh, certain that uh, so many other conflicts or places of political contention in the Middle East have no relations to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, conflict. If you look at the history of uh, conflict in this uh, region of the past uh, 50 years, let's take the you know, Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. As much as uh, Saddam Hussein tried to portray it as a, as a, some, as a war that relates to Israel-Palestine, uh, it was not. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, the history of authoritarian regimes in uh, the Middle East, as much as sometimes there is a tendency to say, well, these authoritarian regimes emerge in the context of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, uh, I don't see it uh, this way. I think these are processes that are the related to social and political and cultural dynamics within particular regions in uh, the Middle East. And uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, may be on the margins of, uh, of it. Uh, historically, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been a, a, the lowest common denominator that many Arabs were willing to agree on. So if there was any element of contention between Egypt and Iraq in the 1960s, then both countries would often bring the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the table because this was some common denominator that they were able to agree on. But that does not mean that uh, political conflict bet over hegemony in the Arab world, let's say, between Egypt and uh, Iraq in the 1950s and 60s was related to or was caused by uh, the existence of uh, Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict. So I, I heard you mention um, Israeli settlement building in one of your previous answers just now. Um, building off of that, the UN has repeatedly condemned uh, Israeli settlement building in the Palestinian territories. 
Nonetheless, settlement building seems to continue. Do you see the UN as having any ability to further deter this settlement building? Broadly speaking, what role, if any, do you see the UN playing in achieving significant observable success in resolving the conflict and deterring settlement building? Right, you know, the UN is uh, as strong as its member states uh, allow it uh, to be. And uh, uh, I think the same question that you asked could be asked also about the United States, and it might be to some extent more relevant uh, for Israel because uh, the chances of the UN playing uh, a role in this uh, conflict is related to the ability of uh, other powers, uh, members of the UN, such as the United States, to allow the UN to play that uh, uh, role. Uh, and uh, additionally, if you look at uh, uh, US formal policies uh, towards Israel and towards the settlement, so in fact the United States has been pretty consistent in arguing that uh, the settlements are basically illegal and that they would not be recognized by the United States uh, and that they are an obstruction to the possibility of a two-state uh, solution for the same reasons that I mentioned earlier when we discussed about the one versus two-state uh, solution. So uh, if there is any chance to have an impact, outside impact, on Israeli policies uh, with regard to the settlement, it would come from a country such as the United States that does have a significant impact on Israeli internal uh, politics. The United States could also play a role in the UN by pressuring Israel to stop uh, the settlement uh, uh, project. Uh, but so long as the United States uh, continues to protect Israel in the United Nations, I do not see the UN playing uh, any positive or powerful role in influencing uh, Israeli policies in, uh, in the West Bank, in Gaza, with regards to the Arab-Israeli conflict, by and large. So if we think about the UN impact, I would say let's first see uh, U.S. and the Israeli relationship and the U.S. involvement in UN deliberations about uh, settlements in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. And if that change, if the United States changes its policy inside the UN and, uh, and uh, uses the UN in order to exert pressure on Israel, then, then the UN would become more effective. Uh, but that's, I, again, I do not see it happening in the near future. Definitely not with this administration. This administration has diverted from policies uh, uh, consensual policies of the United States that were shared both by democratic uh, uh, governments in the United States and Republican uh, regimes that have consistently said uh, the settlements are an obstruction to uh, a two-state solution. The United States uh, does not recognize uh, them as uh, uh, legal and does not and see them as a uh, know, ill-advised as, uh, as a policy that Israel should not uh, follow. This current uh, uh, government, this current administration in the United States actually diverts from that for the first time. And we only heard uh, uh, today that the Trump, Trump administration 
is going to make an announcement about uh, declaring Jerusalem as uh, you know, the capital of the state of uh, uh, Israel. There is no country in the world that recognizes formally uh, Jerusalem as the capital of uh, the state of Israel. In Israel, it is taken for granted. Of course, Jerusalem is the capital of the state. Uh, but because Jerusalem has been uh, a contested area since, in fact, 1948, and continue to be so after the Israeli occupation of, Ju of East Jerusalem in 67, the United States has consistently said that the future of Jerusalem uh, would be settled in a negotiated agreement between Israel and Palestinians, and therefore the United States is not going, not going to first uh, uh, move its embassy to Jerusalem, and second, second recognize the Jerusalem as the capital of, uh, uh, of uh, Israel. So the Trump administration is now diverting from uh, a policy that really has been shared by both uh, Democrats and Republicans for decades, and that may be uh, changing uh, now. And the reason why the Jerusalem is relevant to settlements uh, by and large is because you know, East Jerusalem was occupied together with the rest of the West Bank by Israel in 1967, and it's part of this contested territory that both Israelis and Palestinians uh, argue about. Right, so if the Trump administration is, if they do succeed in moving the embassy to Jerusalem, do you see that uh, spurring significant conflict right away, violence, or what, what, what do you think would be the immediate impact of such a move? Because I've heard that the, the move could create a, a great deal of uh, immediate conflict. Right. I mean, the uh, Palestinians have already, already announced that uh, they would have uh, demonstrations, and uh, uh, so these demonstrations, my guess is that they would happen if the announcement is uh, made. Uh, now, these demonstrations, if they are suppressed by Israel, it could lead to further uh, violence because, you know, uh, all you need is that the cycle of violence, the, you know, re is reignited demonstrations, suppression of demonstrations, possible uh, casualties in these demonstrations, then the morning after uh, growing the demonstrations. So there might be this cycle of violence that uh, might, uh, might go out of control at least for a short period uh, of time. That's on the local uh, level inside Israel, Palestine, and uh, Jerusalem. Regionally, uh, you know, you have Jordan that uh, has its own opinions about Jerusalem. You have Saudi Arabia, a strong ally of the United States, Egypt. So American allies in the region, these Arab countries that I mentioned and others, are strongly in opposition to this uh, move by uh, Trump, by the Trump administration. So that would be another arena where we would have to see how things uh, develop. How would uh, these countries uh, respond to this uh, uh, challenge? Because they need to make some, some announcement, uh, some gesture towards their own constituencies in, in their own countries that uh, oppose uh, the American declaration that recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of uh, Israel. Right. And I think, I think this would be a, a good place to end. I was just going to ask another question um, about America's role in resolving this conflict. If, if you could give, uh, this is a highly theoretical question, and somewhat broad question, but if you could give advice to the Trump administration to change direction and um, to implement certain policies, what advice would you give? I know Jared Kushner recently said that a lasting peace agreement is achievable in the near future between Israel and Palestine. Obviously, 
Um, you, would, you would disagree with that based on certain moves that Trump has been positing lately. But if you could give him advice on what he should do or what the administration by, lar by and large should do, what advice would you give for a U.S. administration in continu uh, continuing to try to resolve this conflict? Yeah, well, it's a tricky question. Uh, I think uh, the United States, uh, uh, the minimum it could do is uh, be strongly in opposition to uh, Israel's settlement project in uh, the West Bank. This would be my uh, uh, one of the th one of the things that the United States could do. Uh, I mean, the official policy, as I said, has always been uh, of uh, opposition to the settlements. Uh, I think the United States could uh, play a more proactive role in opposing uh, the settlements. Uh, to some extent, the United States is, the, I think, the only country in the world that uh, could exert uh, significant pressure on Israel. And uh, successive, successive administrations, American administrations, have been reluctant to uh, exert pressure on uh, uh, Israel. Because as, uh, as I'm sure many know, American policies towards Israel and Palestine is not foreign policy, it is domestic policy. So everything that relates to Israel and Palestine is domestic. And this is why I think the Trump administration is moving forward with uh, this uh, uh, idea of recognizing Jerusalem as the, state, as the capital of Israel. It's less uh, to appease Israel and it's more to appease uh, Trump's uh, conservative constituencies uh, here. And it's not even his Jewish uh, supporters, but it's the Christian right. It's uh, the Christian right that uh, to a large extent brought him to power and that expects him to, you know, to pay back. And uh, this is his payback uh, uh, to them. So such a move uh, that uh, is being declared today we need to look at actually domestic American politics and not at American foreign uh, uh, politics. And the two are intrinsically uh, tied in the case of Israel-Palestine, which makes American involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict extremely uh, complex. Well, thank you, Professor Kaufman. I think uh, we, gained, we all gained a, a lot of insight into this very difficult but important conflict to be talking about. Um, we, we appreciate you coming, coming on today. Uh, and thank you for listening to another episode of Students Talk Security. We hope you enjoyed this insightful talk by Professor Kaufman. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>